All right, I've been sp- suspicious for about three months, and my suspicion about a month and a half ago turned to near certainty, and then just yesterday, my near certainty turned to my phone is dead, and it is interfering with my life. Like, I mean, how many know if, like, you, if your phone died, it, this is a problem, right? It, like, it's, it kind of halts everything. And well, that's what happened to me yesterday. Um, I got this iPhone 6 about three months ago, and somebody asked me, hey, how do you like it? And I was like, you know, the battery life's okay. I'm a little frustrated with it, but it's okay. But then within a month and a half or so, I couldn't get past maybe like 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And then this last week, I was, it was like fully charged, and it was dying by 9 a.m. And it was just like, this is, I know it's messed up. I took it to the Apple store. They told me it wasn't messed up. I took it back to the Apple store yesterday because it wouldn't turn on, and they gave me a, a new battery. And life is good, and it's like no longer interfering with me. This morning, we're going to look at Psalm 73 in detail. Now, I don't preach like Pastor Dan. I love the way Pastor Dan preaches. I'm not gifted like Pastor Dan in that way, but I am in my own way. So I'm not going to do like him. I'm going to actually walk you through it verse by verse by verse by verse. 1 through 28. I won't, I won't, it won't be more than a couple hours, but 1 through 28. <laughs> we can do this quick. But, um, and, and, well, never mind. But you might find yourself, when you're listening to Psalm 73, you might find yourself suspicious that this applies to you. You might find yourself near certain. Or you might find yourself absolutely, you know what, I am dead. This is interfering with me. This way of thinking is killing me. I'm absolutely doing this. And I just want to tell you on the front end, the Lord can absolutely take you out of what what this psalm's talking about, and fix it. And so when you walk out of here today, if this is hitting you, or if you're just a little suspicious that it might be hitting you, uh, we walk out of today with a new perspective, all right? So Psalm 73, I want to start with the first two verses, and then I want to interrupt myself with a couple stories, and then I want to take us through one by one by one all the way to the 28. So let's start just by reading the opening of Psalm 73. It says, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me... My feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. Asaph is the writer of this psalm. Anybody heard of Asaph? Raise your hand. Not many. Anybody know a lot about Asaph? Like, I mean, like he's like one of your favorites. Okay, that's what I was kind of thinking. Me neither. Like Asaph, it's just like the only time you ever see it is like the very top. It says a psalm of, of Asaph. Well, we're going to talk about him a little bit. He opens this psalm. And I think it's important to recognize that verse 1, he says, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And then he says, but I almost messed up. I almost missed it. I almost slipped. I almost lost my foothold. And I just want to tell you right up front that he starts out by saying, Surely God is good. And then for the next little bit, he is just telling us all the ways that God is bad and that things are bad. And I think I want to point that out to you just to say that he's writing this afterwards. And, uh, and so he's just letting people know, hey, before we start reading this, just know, I believe that God is good. And then he gives this complaint, and then something happens, and we're going to go through that and, and look at that. So, so surely God is good, but as for me, I had almost slept. So, first story. Preston, my little brother, my little bro Preston, turned 21. Is Preston here, Dad? He's up there. Hey, Preston. Hey, bud. Preston's 21 years old. If you don't know Preston yet, you need to get to know him. Preston was in the Special Olympics. He's at, he has Down syndrome. It's a miracle. Uh, he's a blessing to our family. He's actually graduating high school. Yeah. 
And next month, if you're a graduate, we're going to be walking people up on the stage and honoring you for that. And high school, college graduates, all that stuff. Preston's going to be walking. Now I'm excited, excited for him. So anyway, Preston, somewhere around 9 or 10 years old, is a pretty strong memory in my mind. He, he's in the Special Olympics. And we go to UTA, University of Texas, Arlington. And uh, that's where the Special Olympics event was for that day. So Preston's doing a couple of events. One of them is the 50-yard dash, and the other one was the softball throw. Okay, 50-yard dash went great. He's, he's booking it. We get to the softball throw, and it was interesting. It's Preston's turn. He steps up to the line. All right, Preston, do your best. So hand him the ball. Try to hand him the ball. He just has his arms here. Finally, he gets his hand up. They put the ball in his hand. All right, Preston, you got this, bro. Go. You sit here for a while, what seems like eternity. Kind of like that light over here on Meacham whenever you're trying to take a left on beach. (laughs) Finally, after a while, they run out. Six foot, four inches, and a quarter. I like how they do the quarter. It's Special Olympics, but we are going to be really precise because it might be close at the end. Six foot, four inches, and a quarter. He sits back down. Everybody else goes. And the cool thing about Special Olympics is he's like nine or ten, but the next guy is like 35. And then the next person is like six. It's all about your ability, right, not, not how old you are or your size. Next person goes, next person, next person. Finally, Preston's turn again. Preston comes up for a second throw. It's really particular where he stands. This time he gets his hand up. They put the ball in his hand. And we sit there like a kid waiting for Christmas. Finally throws it. They run out there. Eight foot, six and seven-eighths inch. Hey, good job, Preston. Good job. And Preston's like, okay, okay. So he goes back. And we wait, and everybody else. And other kids are throwing like 22 feet, 27 feet, 33 feet, and Preston's, you know. Anyway, finally Preston's next turn comes up, and he gets there. Put the ball in his hand. It sailed over all the measuring people's heads. They're all like the 30 foot, 40 foot, because no one's thrown it past that. The field that we're in butts up against the bus barn. He threw it over the fence into the bus barn. Way to go, press! (laughs) So something like clicked in between the second and the third, and he just got it. And he was like, this is my moment. And he just, it's like 150 feet. It's awesome. I mean, he, I, I couldn't wait for him to get his gold medal. Turned out he got disqualified because <laughs> he threw it too far. <laughs> they got rules. But, uh, but I was so proud of him. It just, it was awesome. But he got it. He caught it just before the end. He's like, one more throw and he got it. 150 plus feet. Never got that ball again. It was awesome. Another story. Me and my dad went to Africa about eight years ago. It was the 20th anniversary of when mom and dad came back from Africa with the family. They were missionaries there for about a decade or so. So we go back 20 years later, and while we were there, uh, we got to our little house, 
and uh, one night towards the beginning of our trip, I'm sitting at the sink, or standing at the sink, and as I go to brush my teeth, I reach for the toothpaste, and as I do, I knocked my face wash off the sink, and it fell over towards the toilet, okay? And it would have been nice had it bounced around a few times and, and I could have retracted. It didn't. It like so perfectly torpedoed into the toilet that it hit the water, and it was one of those little three-ounce ones, you know, that's just as big as you can get through the airport security, right? So it hit the water, submerged, and then because of its buoyancy, it popped up on the other side of the little curvy in the toilet. You know what I mean? You know the curvy part? And I mean, I tried to grab, but it was, it was too fast, and, and I'm sitting there, and it's gone. And let me tell you something. If you don't know this about me, I have the skin of like a 13-year-old girl. I mean, like, I'll break out if I eat pizza. I mean, it's like, I'll, it's like I thought that was going to go away at 20. It didn't. 25, surely at 30. It did, it's just what I got, all right? Me and my sister were cursed with that skin. So I'm like, I got to get that face wash. That's really important because I lost the other bottle when we went through customs or whatever because it was four and a half ounces. So I, that's all I got. And we're in Africa for like 16 days, and it's like 100 and Africa degrees outside every single day. And I'm going to be sweating. out. This is not good. So I got to get that. So I get on my hands and knees. And I'm not a germaphobe. I, I mean, I'm not. And it's, but I get on my hands and knees, and I'm like, okay, it's okay, it's just water, just water. It looks pretty clean. I mean, it's a, it's a clean African toilet. I mean, you've, you've seen those, right? So I reach in. That's the easy part. Then I, I got to get underneath that little curvy part, and I reach under. Oh, and right about then is where I started feeling the slime and the sludge. And, it, and it's rubbing against my hand. I was like, ooh, that's not good. And then I did something bad. I didn't tuck my fingers, and I felt it scrape on my fingernails, and that was really bad. Because I'm like, I'm going to bring that out with me. That's not good. So I reach in there, and I feel it, and I'm just jiggling. i got to grab it, and I bring it back out, and I throw it in the sink, and I turn on the water, and I wash my hands, and I rinse, and I wash my hands, and I rinse, and I wash my and scalding water. And I mean, what? it's just like 10 times I wash my hands, and I just could not lose that little feeling. <laughs> Woo! But I got it. <laughs> I mean, it would have been nice had I like knocked it and been like, woohoo, got it before. But I didn't. I knocked it, it went in, but I got it. <laughs> I got it. And Asaph, just like my brother and just like me, we got it before it was too late. Now, you guys don't know who Asaph is, or most of you guys don't, or if you do, you just know his name. I want to tell you a little bit about Asaph. Uh, because he's a pretty big deal. In fact, I was walking on my campus this last week, and I looked up on the side of the building, and I see this. ASAP. I mean, this was like four days ago. I'm like, ah, i got to send that to Andrea. So I take a picture. ASAP's on the side of the building. Now, that's the music building on my campus. And so it makes sense it's on the music building because ASAP is the worship leader for David. Now, it's not like today. It's not like... He's Brent for, for Dan. I mean, there was several, but he's the worship leader that, that leads worship around the ark. I mean, he's a, he's a big deal. And the cool thing about Asaph is Psalms is broken up into five books. And the third book is between Psalms 73 and 89. He wrote most of that. It's, it's accredited to him. Asaph wrote more of the Bible than Peter. You ever heard of Peter? Yeah. He wrote more of the Bible than James. Asaph wrote more of the Bible than Jude, Jonah, Amos, Micah, Joel, Malachi, Zephaniah, Habakkuk, Nahum, Haggai, and Obadiah. And who is he? 
Who, who, who's Asaph? I've heard these other guys, but who's Asaph? He's a big deal. He's the worship leader for David. And not only that, but he's the worship leader when David leaves. And Solomon comes into play. He's still the worship leader. And then when Solomon leaves, Rehoboam takes over, and he's still the worship leader. Now, if you know anything about Israel's history, you know that under David and before David, like he saw the rise, the rise of Israel. I mean, it was, it, David was, a, was awesome, and he saw the rise. And then David's kingship, I mean, it's just such, such a wonderful kingship. He had his problems, but I mean, it's like, this is a, those are the golden days. And then he sees the baton passed off to Solomon. And under Solomon, man, the early part of Solomon was just like stacking upon it. It was just like the wealth and the, the, just the influence and just all this majesty. It was just such a great time. And then, you know, Solomon's story, it didn't end well with him. It started to kind of go down. And then he sees the kingdom split into Israel and Judah, and he sees this split. And so Asaph by now is an old man, and Asaph, the worship leader for Solomon and for David and Rehoboam, he's a, he's a stud. I mean, he's like a big deal. I'm sure he was humble about it, but he's a big deal. And he sees the rise, the peak, the fall, the splitting. I mean, he's seen it all. And because of all that, he finds himself disillusioned, distraught, frustrated, why is he frustrated? He's going to tell about it in Psalm 73. Asaph is such a big deal, and yet we don't know him. And I think because of what he said to do in his Psalm 73, we're able to read about him this many thousands of years later and be encouraged. And I think it's going to bring some change in you. So earlier when I said, you might be suspicious that you're dealing with this problem that Asaph did, or you might be quite certain, or you might even be like, I am absolutely dead in this. It is interfering with my life. I'm saying just like Asaph, the Lord can rearrange it and we walk out of here and that's not an issue anymore. And we get on to what we're supposed to be getting on to. Asaph's a big deal. In fact, I was, I was reading one commentary that said that Asaph's life, uh, the Bible says more about his life than everybody in the Old Testament except for these guys. Moses, David, Samuel, and perhaps Isaiah, Hosea, and Jeremiah. Those are some heavy hitters. We're going to learn about Asaph today. You will know who that guy is from here on. First one. You got your Bibles? Good. I encourage you guys to, to bring an actual paper Bible like, and, and actually write in it. Because when I flip through my Bible... There's notes and stuff from what Des said 10 years ago and what Pastor Dan said three years ago. And I'm telling you, it's like the message just keeps on teaching me and blessing me. So I know the phone is convenient, but get a real Bible, all right? Bring it. Bring a real Bible. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. He starts that way because it's, like, it's almost like a surely he's good to Israel, to those in pure in heart, right? Right? Surely he is, right? Because what I'm seeing is the opposite. He says, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. What's his problem? Here it is. Verse 3. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So he's dealing with the age-old question, why do bad things happen to good people and why do good things happen to bad people? Socrates said, you want to vex, you want to mess with a good man? Show him a bad man who's getting stuff. You want to vex a bad man? Show him a good man prospering. Socrates said that. This is an age-old, age-old problem. For I envy the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now, envy 
is, uh, is not a sin that we talk about a whole lot. Like, we all know it's wrong, but we don't really think of it like murder and stealing and stuff. But I'm telling you, envy is bad. Envy is really, really bad. And you need to be reminded about that. Envy is what the Bible said that Cain did before he killed his brother Abel. So the first murder in history, because of envy. The worst murder in history, Christ. Envy is what it says in Mark. In fact, we'll turn to that and read it. Mark says, uh, chapter, uh, chapter 15, 9 through 11, it says, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate, knowing it was out of envy that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. Envy is bad, really bad. The first and the worst murders. And I'll tell you what, envy, un- you guys are probably not going to murder most of you are probably not going to murder. I know that'll happen. And I'm serious. That'll happen. It happens occasionally, and sometimes it's self-defense and all those things. But most of you, but I'm telling you, a Christian, one of the quickest and most dangerous sins we can fall into is envy. It will creep into your heart so fast, and it's like you're not going to fall into some sexual sin. You see that one coming. You know, that, so, no, I've been taught. No, I can't. You're not going to fall into some other. But envy can sneak around. All you got to hear is that someone at your work or someone at your school gets blessed for something or gets a position or something. Envy sneaks right in. It's really, really dangerous, and it will kill you. It will absolutely interfere with your life, as it does here with Asaph. So verse 3, for I envy the arrogant when I saw the wicked prospering, they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. It sounds like Job. Uh, Job in, in chapter 21 talks about the same thing. He's going through his struggles. And says, the, the wicked aren't struggling. They don't have any burdens. Life's all good for them. Is it good for them? Some. But that's a generalization. That's just how you feel. So if you find yourself thinking, man, that, that girl I work with seems like everything's going good for her, you might be suspicious that you've got some of the same thing going on that Asaph had going on. They have no struggles. They're free from burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. Their pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. Their pride is their necklace. You know, in Colossians 3, it talks about how we're supposed to clothe ourselves, but it's not with violence. In fact, it says, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, with kindness, with humility, with gentleness, and with patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over these virtues, over all this stuff that you put on, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. It's like a belt or something. Love is the belt. It's like the last accessory. Clothe yourself. The scriptures have told us, clothe yourself with righteousness, humility, patience, love. What do these guys clothe themselves with? Asaph's like, these guys, they're not struggling. In fact, they're clothing themselves with with violence. And their necklace, they wear pride around their neck like a necklace. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their mind know no limits. They just keep going and going and sinning and sinning and being more evil and more evil. This is from their callous hearts. Some of the commentaries say from their fat hearts. Not, not fat like an insult, but like fat. Like, man, they, they're just in abundance. In abundance. I mean, they're, they're, they're just, they're just, they're getting it all. They're, everything's good for them. And they're just, he's, he's, you know what he's doing? He, he's looking at other people. <laughs> he's got his focus wrong. 
In fact, the first part of this, the first part before the, the pivotal point, midway through in verse 17, the first part before it hinges and turns, it's like two-thirds of the talk is about other people and one-third is about himself. But then you read after that hinging point, it flips. It's like two-thirds about himself and God and then the, the, he almost like, you know, I'm going to forget about talking about those other people. If you find yourself thinking and bothered and talking about other people a lot, you might be suspicious that this is happening to you too. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds know no limits. They scoff and speak with malice and their arrogance. They threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. I was curious about that scripture. It says their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. One really really kind of more uh, artistic commentary said, picture like you're drinking out of a big milk bottle. You know, not like a little, like a 20 ounce bottle with a little little circle or whatever you call it, a spout or whatever you call it, but like a big one. And it says, this scripture, when it says, when it says that their mouths lay claim to heavens and their tongues take possession of the earth, it's saying that the wicked are like this. They got this big bottle and their upper lip touches the heavens and their lower lip touches the earth. And as they drink, all of it goes in. In other words, they get it all. They, get the, they seem to get the heavenly stuff. They seem to get the earth. Whatever they want, they get. And that's what the scripture is saying. Their mouths lay claim to heaven. Their tongues take possession of the earth. They're just getting whatever they want. Therefore, they're, and then, and then on, worse than that, then people start turning to them and drinking up the waters in abundance. I mean, they're the fools. They're the wicked. And yet people are going to them and giving them awards and wanting their advice. And, and this is just driving Asaph crazy. Asaph's a man of God. He, do you remember who Asaph is? He's the worship leader for all these people. Hey, by the way, Brent, I'm speaking in, in the key of T today. T. I, I don't even know what that means, and neither do they. All right, let's go. <laughs> they say, again, again, the wicked, this is what they're talking about. The turn hasn't happened yet. So remember he says, hey, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And then he just starts spewing off all this stuff. We're still in the spew part, okay? We are in the, like, the slime of the toilet right now. This is pretty much what it is. This is, this is. We have not got it yet. We have not rescued it yet. How can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? I mean, this is what they're saying. They don't even, they're not even respecting God. I mean, they're, like, they're thumbing their nose at God. This is what the wicked are like. Always carefree. They increase in their wealth. And this is where you know he's in trouble. Verse 13. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. Charles Spurgeon says that right here, Asaph's faith is napping. I like how he said that. It's napping. He's a man of God. He knows better. And yet out of his own mouth, surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. That's a, that's a, that shows the condition where he's at. He's saying, in other words, I regret doing right. I regret following the Lord. I regret the ways of the Lord. I have wasted my time doing what the Lord's asked me to do. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. Surely in vain have I washed my hands in innocence. That's bad. We're supposed to live our lives with no regret. That's how we're supposed to live. Now, I know that the world has taken that, that concept, and that basically means, you know what, live it up, do whatever you want, you know, just 
every pleasure that you want, just take it, everything you want. That's, I know the world has taken that. But we as Christians have the same, we're supposed to have the same mentality. You get one shot at being a teenager. Live it well. Maximize it. Do it for the glory of God. You get one shot of college. Live it up. Live it well. Not to seek your own pleasures, not to seek your own desires, but to please the Lord and to glorify him. You get one shot of being married without any kids. You get one shot of being married with a young child. You get one shot of married and the kids are getting older. You get one shot of the kids are out of the house, the empty nesters. You get one shot of your last 10 years of life. You get one shot. Maximize it. Live life with no regrets. And Asaph here is saying, surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. Surely in vain. Have I washed my hands in innocence? All day long I have been plagued. I have been punished every morning. Now, I can just start talking and talking too long, but I just want this to sit in before this thing turns. In case I'm not clear, what I'm talking about here is, are you disillusioned? Has life not turned out the way you thought it would turn out? Are you wondering why the faithful people are suffering in the Wicked or prospering. I mean, if, if these thoughts are coming up, you're human, but it's toxic. I mean, if this is where your mind is sitting and you're, you're laboring on these things, this is, this, is, this is problematic. So recognize that good men, good women have been in this spot before. I have, I have been in this spot. Not to throw myself in the good men and women part, but I have been in this spot before. Asaph, this incredible guy, was in this spot. But recognize what it is. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a misperception. It's a, it's a misperception. It's a, you're just off. You need to be calibrated. And the Lord calibrates. So we're about to see it. All day long have I been plagued. I have been punished every morning. If I had said, let this be a lesson to, to us today. If I had said, and he didn't, I will speak this. I would have betrayed your children. Let me give you a little, little piece of advice. If you are struggling through this type of disillusionment and, and even questioning God about this kind of stuff right now, keep it to yourself. Talk to a peer. Talk to a, someone that's further along in the Christian walk. Absolutely. But he said, if I had told this to the children, I would have really caused them a lot of damage. He says, if I, if I, would have be, I would have betrayed the children. And we know what the scripture says. If you cause any of these little ones to, to fall or to stumble, you might as well have a, a millstone tied around your neck and thrown into the sea. This is a big deal. Too often, as Christians, I'll see someone struggling through an issue, and they'll spew it all over those that are weaker in the faith than they are. The good news is you're probably going to come out of it. The bad news is when you do, because you spewed it to so many people, are you going to track down and find all those people that they're still wallowing in it and they don't have the maturity to get through it like you do? Probably not. And so he says, I'm so glad I shut my mouth and didn't say the things I was thinking to the children. Now, I'm not saying don't go talk to a superior or a, a, a person superior in their faith and their walk or a, or a peer. I'm not saying that. We do not live in isolation. I'm just saying Shut up. I mean, don't mess with the little ones because you're struggling through something. You'll get through it. Just like Pastor Dan said last week, you know, we always feel like we're trying to, like the Lord's trying to find a reason to back away from us. He is like relentlessly after us. 
you're going to get through it. Don't betray the little ones along the way. So spiritually shut up. I mean, every once in a while, if, if you're struggling through this. But he didn't do that. He just said, I'm just really glad I didn't. Uh, let's see here. Verse 16. When I tried to understand all of this, it was oppressive to me. Until, verse 17, I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their destiny. This is what I felt. This is what I just couldn't get over. This was my burden. This was the pain. This was the struggle. This is the disillusionment. This is the why has this happened to me? Woe is me. Why is the wicked so? And then I went to church. And it's not just church. But it's absolutely church included. It's really, the, then I got in the presence of God, and it changed. Why do you think the enemy is constantly trying to pull people out of church? They go through a, trouble, a troubled time, or they have questions, and what do they want to do? They want to run from church. The very place that they can encounter the Spirit of God, the very place that they can get the help they need, and they evacuate, and they run, and they don't overcome that's what the enemy is trying to do. So Asaph is struggling, 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 struggling. What turns it around for him? I went to the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Charles Spurgeon, again, in his book, uh, he's got a book called The Treasuries of David. And basically he takes all the Psalms and just collects cool little thoughts and quotes and stuff throughout history. And so you look at Psalm 1, there'll be like five pages of just little, little brief statements about Psalm 1. Then you turn to Psalm 2 and, and throughout the whole thing. He spent the last 30 years of his life doing that. Amazing guy and an amazing book. It's a really good little addition to your devotion. It's called Treasuries of David. Anyway, Charles Spurgeon said, it's kind of like this. We spend our time, we, we, we look at somebody as they're being raised above the crowds. They're being exalted. They're being lifted up only to watch a few minutes later a noose wrap around their neck and the floor swing open and the man's dead. He says, that's what it's like. I looked at the, the wicked. They're prospering. All is good. They have no struggles. They have no fears. They're fat. They're, everything's great. They're lifted up. And that's who I was envying, only to be reminded that the floor is about to drop out as a dead man walking. Oh, he's comfortably. He's comfortable but he's a dead man. And that's what happened here in verse 17. He says, I was struggling with this, and then I realized when I entered the church, I realized their final destiny. Oh, I saw their prosperity, but now I see their prospect. And it ain't pretty. Perception changed. They got it right. Listen to this perception. I don't know how to say the guy's name. Alexander Solzhenitsyn. <laughs> you said it one time for me. You, I just told you about the quote, and you knew his name right off. What's his name? Ale it's that Russian guy, Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Anyway, I was just reading along, and I ran across this quote one day. Really, really cool. He says, because he's had one of these moments. He's been put into a Russian gulag, a, uh, a prison camp, wrongfully, of course. He's been there for 10, 15 years, I think it was. And this is what he says. And tell me this is not the Lord has changed his perception, and his perspective has changed. Because you don't say this without a verse 17 moment, until you get in the sanctuary of God. Unless you come into the presence of God, you don't talk like this. He says, bless you, prison. Bless you for being in my life. 
For there, lying upon the rotting prison straw, I came to realize that the object of life is not prosperity as we are made to believe, but the maturity of the human soul. That guy has been in the sanctuary of God. Did he go to church? That's why I said it's absolutely church. He didn't get that privilege to go to church. He's in a little cell with a rotting prison straw, and he is in the sanctuary of God because the Lord is where we need him. So verse 18, so that's the hinging point. That's the turn of the entire uh, psalm. No longer are we going to talk about other people. We're going to talk about himself and the Lord going forward. It says, verse 18 says, Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terror. Doesn't that sound different? Earlier it was, oh, they get everything they want. They're blessed. It's easy for them. And now he says, surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away from terror. Contrast that with verse 2. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. When you follow the Lord, you're going to have almost and nearlys in your life. I almost slipped. I nearly slipped. Why didn't you? Because the Lord is keeping us. The Lord is guiding us. He knows that we're frail. He knows that we're subject to messing up. But it's a lot of almost moments. It's a lot of nearly moments, but not the wicked we forget the, the power and the, the blessing that the presence of the Lord is in our lives sometimes. My grandpa used to say, protect the presence of God in your life. Protect the presence of God in your life. And because when the presence of God is with you, you have a lot of almosts. You have a lot of nearlies. But with the wicked, it says, they're on slippery ground, man. They're, they're heading for destruction. They are going to fall. They are going to lose it. It's not going to be an almost or a nearly. They're, they're, they don't have that, that protection. And that's what you see in verse, verse 18. Verse 20. Am I boring, you guys? <laughs> you guys okay? Okay, good. As a dream, when one awakes, so when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. Their little lives are going to be fantasies. Now, this is not supposed to lead us to not care about the lost. We are absolutely supposed to go get the lost. And he'll talk about that in a little bit. But it's like a dream. They're going to be gone. I mean, it's like a but we're going to be in the presence of the Lord forever. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. In other words, when I was thinking the old way, I was a brute beast, man. I was thinking about, I was like, a, I was like an animal. All I could think about was my comfort. And my, it was like creaturely comforts. That's, that's how I was. Sorry, God, for thinking that way. I've got a new perspective Now he says, yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you, and earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You know, wherever you go, as long as God's there, you're going to be fine. That's really what you want. You don't really want Correct perspective speaking here. You don't really want that highest promotion. You want the presence of God to be with you. It could be at that high place, or it could be right where you are for the next 30 years. As long as the presence of God is there, that's what you really want. The earth has nothing that you need besides him. Verse 27, and we're almost done. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me... It is good to be near God. 
I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of your deeds. Jovan, you sang that song earlier, something like, I want to spend my life telling about your glory. It's like, that's what he's talking about. That's where I want to spend my life, telling about your glory, telling about your deeds. You know, the first part, when he was comparing, it led him to envy. The second part, when he's comparing, it leads him to evangelism. You do not evangelize if your thoughts and your dreams are on earthly, temporal things. You're too caught up on stuff and what I want and my comfort. You do not find yourself telling of his deeds and that thought. But as soon as that hinge, that, that pivot happens, then all of a sudden, these are the fruits of our lives. We tell of his good deeds. We, we, we enjoy just the fact that we're in his presence. I mean, this is so different. So the first time, the first comparison leads to envy, the second to evangelism. Now, by now, you know. Have I been struggling with this a little bit? Maybe at work or at school or something? Have I been struggling with it? Asaph was too. I have too. You know, every once in a while, I'll just be a little, little too honest with you. Every once in a while when I get into my Honda CRV 2000 model, it's just between me and you. And all the 10 people that are going to listen to this later on MP3. <laughs> my grandma, my, <laughs> me. <clears throat> between me and you, every once in a while when I get in that car, and I, especially when I see one of you guys get a new car, I have the real potential and the real capability to get envious. <laughs> and I have to stop it pretty quick because it doesn't lead to good thoughts. And I apologize for the, the power steering fluid that's leaking out there. <laughs> that is mine. I try to park in different spots so it doesn't all pull up. And <laughs> that way I'm like, man, everybody's cars are leaking. <laughs> But it's really easy, and as Christians, again, I'm telling you, I'm, I, am not, I am not incapable of murder, of sexual sin, of, I mean, I am one bad decision away from all that stuff, but most likely, envy will be the next sin that I'll fall into before I, before I murder somebody, you know what I mean? And so... <laughs> All right. So all I'm saying is the Lord fixes this. This is a perspective issue. This is a let's get into the house of the Lord. Let's remember the ways of the Lord, and it can fix that. Because it's, it's not a pretty place to be. Envy is a really dangerous sin. Um, what, what I kind of think of is like, it's like life can just kind of get in your way. Earth kind of gets in your way. Um, you know, when you look up at the moon tonight, I don't know where it's at as far as in its, its cycle, but... When the moon is fully lit, it's not because the moon is emitting light. We know that it's because the sun is reflecting upon the moon and shining upon the moon. And when you look up and you see a half moon, it's not because the moon decided to only emit half its light. It's because the earth has gotten in the way and is casting a shadow. The earth is interfering with the moon's ability to shine and then you see it at a quarter, and then you see sometimes where it's not shining at all. Earth gets in the way, and, it, and, it, and, there's, and, it, and the moon shows it. I mean, it's, it doesn't shine. Um, I think earth gets in our way a lot of times. We call this reality, oh, reality is getting in my way. I know we call it reality, but really? I mean, if I drug a chain across here with 
500 links, it wouldn't be long enough. But if one of those little links was your life, that kind of gives you a picture of what this reality really is. You've got 70 years or so, who knows. It's this one little chain link. But you guys do know that eternity goes on forever. And not only that, but eternity goes on forever the other way too. God has always been. And we're living in a link of life. And if you just step back and say, you know what? How can I call that reality if it's one little link? I know it's all we know right now, but how can I possibly call that reality and live for that when the Scriptures are telling me that eternity is going to be so much bigger, (laughs) so much bigger. And so whenever we find ourselves in these envious places, these places of disillusionment and disheartening, and we're really getting caught up being bothered by the wicked prospering and bad things happening to good people and all these kind of things, these are real issues. But can you step back for a second and say, you know what, that's not reality. That, this is not reality. Reality is the other part. (laughs) That we're gonna, if, if the Lord could peel back what we call time and this temporal place and he shows how, how transcending he is and how, how big he is, we would then all of a sudden not care so much about the stuff that we can get caught up in caring about. And we would instead, like Asaph, be thankful for the presence of the Lord and, and then tell of his good deeds, etc. So the earth just keeps getting in our way. And every once in a while we just got to remind ourselves that... <laughs> That's just the earth. I mean, we got it. You know, when I go play golf, and I'm going to play on Thursday with the Teen Challenge ladies, I love, I love doing that. But I remember that one of the first times I played golf with Pastor Des, he was in the cart riding around, and I got all my positioning right, and I swung the club, and I, and I hit it fat. If you're a golfer, you know, hitting it fat means you basically hit the ground before you hit the ball, and the ball goes like 40 yards instead of like 140 or 240 yards. Hitting it fat. And I'm like, oh, man, I'm starting to walk back to the cart and Des says, you hit the big ball before you hit the small ball. <laughs> and I'm oh, the earth. I hit the earth. <laughs> That's right. Earth keeps getting in the way. <clears throat> I want to read an email. I was gonna, I'm going gonna, I'm to close with this. I'm going to read an email. I got this from uh, Billy Graham's uh, email. I just kind of fit. Uh, for this week, it says, traveling in Ethiopia, this is actually from Franklin Graham, his son. Traveling in Ethiopia brought to mind a man I met there and got to know in the 1980s. Andy Meekins was a gentle giant of a faith, an Englishman who loved Jesus Christ and served him in Africa for many, many years. In 1996, an Ethiopian Airlines flight was hijacked and crashed into the ocean just off the Comoros Islands after running out of fuel. You may have heard the story The dramatic moment of impact was caught on home video and broadcast around the world. Only later did we learn of something even more dramatic happening in the cabin as the plane headed for disaster. Andy Meekins and his wife were on that plane seated together. The hijackers demanded to be flown to Australia even though there wasn't nearly enough fuel for that distance. As they neared the Comoros Islands in the Indian Ocean, one engine flamed out. And the pilot told passengers that the remaining engine would soon run out of fuel as well. Immediately, Andy's wife heard the snap of a seatbelt being unbuckled and turned to see her husband stand up. Many of us might die in this crash, he called out. 
So there's something you need to know. And then Andy began explaining the gospel simply and urgently, moving to each part of the cabin so that everyone could hear. He invited people to place their trust in Jesus Christ in repentance and in faith. A flight attendant heard Andy's words, bowed her head, and asked Jesus to forgive her sins and come into her heart. She watched many, many more respond, and along with another survivor, they later told the story. Of the 175 people on board, 125 died, including Andy, who was still on his feet preaching the gospel as the plane hit the water. That guy had a right perspective. That guy, though earth interfered and caused his death, earth was not interfering with his life. That guy, like Asaph, at some point got it and refused to live verses 1 through 16, but decided I'm going to live verse 17 through 28. Let's look briefly at four of the verses we just looked at. And then Brent, I want you to come up and I want you to play that old hymn, Ain't Gonna Let Earth Interfere No More. I'm going to church. <laughs> you know that one? It's in T, the key of T. <clears throat> All right. Verse 3, 17, 25, 28, and then seriously, lead us because we need to respond in our hearts. Verse 3, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Until I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of your deeds. Amen.